This week's tip of the week comes from Jordan Schwarzenberger, who's the co-founder of Arcade Media. Jordan says, having worked with countless creators, traditional talent, and brands throughout the years, the number one undefeated growth hack binding the great and the good is this, anti-perfectionism. To grow at pace, elite talent doesn't think twice. They form a habit of go-getting that unleashes a deeper creativity, one that's not bound by form and analysis, but by gut energy. There is nothing more powerful. For a medium that requires constancy 24-7, it's crucial to be free from interior constraints. Now, it's easier said than done, for sure. However, to excel, it is key. So seek out new formats, take a punt on different aspect ratios, try adventurous camera styles, character lengths, do it all! The more you try and the less you analyze, the quicker things will move. Welcome to Inside the Creator Economy right here on Fireside. I'm Jim Lauterbach. Glad to have you here. And I'm Cassie Roma. Hello from Auckland, New Zealand. How are you, Cassie? Oh, box of fluffy ducks, Jim. We've had our time change over here in the Southern Hemisphere, so it is noon. We got a little bit of extra sleep this week, so everything is locked down but looking up. Oh, wow. So it's noon there, which means for a really bright, shining moment, we're only four hours apart, and then our time change will come in and... It'll kick us back apart again, but it's, wow, four hours. No, it'll move, it'll move us closer. Three hours, that's be right. three hours then. This is, yeah. Isn't it amazing that our countries can be so far away? I'm in California, by the way, for those of you who want to know. And yet we only have three hours of time zones separating us. I mean, 21 hours, but who's counting? Well, but you know, I'm about to, I'm going to hop over to the East Coast tomorrow. And as a three hour time zone change there. It's going to take me about five hours to fly there. It'd probably take me about, what, 50 hours to, no, it'd probably take 14 hours to fly to you, right? That's right. All right. Well, I guess you're not, you're not that close. But anyway, glad you guys are on the daylight savings time of your annual trip around the sun. We're, we're getting less sun here and sooner or later it's going to be dark a lot more. So enjoy the sun while you have it. You know I do, Jim. I'm a California kid. I know. I know. Enjoy the sun. It's actually not that bad here. I don't know what I'm complaining about. Okay. Let's go to our news of the week. All right, our first news story this week is all about our friends at LinkedIn. Yes, LinkedIn finally becomes the last major platform to actually pay its creators. But because it's LinkedIn, it's not really paying for content. Instead, its plans are to build an accelerator program where up to 100 creators will get $15,000 and 10 weeks of training to help build their LinkedIn chops. Now, LinkedIn claims it's investing $25 million in this program, which, by the way, compared to everybody else, is not very much. But even that, I guess it's just new creator economy math at work because, you know, when I use my traditional math skills... If I have 100 people and I pay them each $15,000, it's $1.5 million. But I guess I just don't know this new creator economy math. Or they've got plans for the other $23.5 million and just aren't telling anybody. Cassie, I'm happy that LinkedIn is finally paying creators. I'm just underwhelmed by what they are actually doing. I think this is becoming a trend for you, this whole like actually doing the math and <laughs> creating, you know, thinking, critical thinking skills. 
when you sent this through, Jim, I actually went through the entire process. So I went through the sign up process. I went through every step and literally a minute before we hopped on here, I sent the entire thing through. So I'm curious to see from a creator perspective, even without thinking about the math, how this is going to go, how it's going to roll out, what the follow-up comms are going to look like, because you'd assume with something like this, uh, regardless of investment, that they'd start to build out different kinds of products as well, different kinds of ways to act and interact as a creator. I'm really curious about that side of things. A hundred people feels like a very small pilot for something like this, especially with the size of LinkedIn and you know how just the critical mass on there, there's a lot of engagement. So a hundred feels small. But I'm curious to see how this rolls out. Yeah, and I will say I did the same thing you did when I saw this. I went in and filled out the application too, just for fun. Except I stopped when it said it needed a video. And I was like, all right, I'll shoot you a video, but I just can't do it right now. I've got all this other stuff going on. So I have until October 2nd to finish it. And you all listening have until October 2nd to fill it out. If they pick me, I'm not going to go into it. But I do think 100 is very small. I think it's not like they're bringing everybody together, I don't think. I mean, it's 10 weeks of training, but it's not like a typical mm-hmm. incubator accelerator in the past where you would bring everybody to one place and they meet in person and they connect with each other. So I don't know what they're going to do for 10 weeks. I don't know if it's eight hours of training five days a week or if it's one hour of training one day a week over 10 weeks. And so what that actually is, again, I love that they're doing this. It's the beginning. So props to you, LinkedIn. Let's see it roll out. Let's see oh, maybe 10 or 15% of your overall revenue that you get from your creator. Oh, well, you don't really have advertising, so you may not be getting it. Well, you've got to be getting something from all that. You get engagement. How about tithing 10% to creators? Just 10%. What do you think? Is that a good number, Cassie? I mean, you're the math whiz, but... (laughs) I don't know what (laughs) their revenue is. (laughs) I know. Anything sounds good right now for as much time and love that creators put into the platform. It's still, I know I say this all the time, but it's one of my favorite platforms. That's probably because I'm an 80-year-old English woman at heart, but it feels like this is time. It's time. We need to do a little bit better, but it's a step. It's a step in the right direction. We shall see. And on the video thing, Jim, I was just real lazy and I took a 90-second video I already had and just shoved that right in. Well, you know, it asked for a couple of things that you've done on LinkedIn. I did put the video up and included it there that I did with Bradley Miles from Roll that we talked about last week. So... We might not have talked about it last week, but we're going to talk about it in a few minutes. Anyway, I just put that video in, but I still need to put something. I was thinking of like just doing one of those deadpans, turn on the camera and be like, hi, accept me to your program, please. I really need it. Which who knows, maybe if I do something that weird, they'll actually let me in because obviously that would need it. That would be the most fun job right now. It's like, let's watch these videos and see how weird they can get. It is LinkedIn too. So I mean, people are going to dress up in their double-breasted suits and they're going to do the whole thing. I'm like, I should actually, that's the other thing. You get like a real seersucker suit and a top hat on. You could go out and be doing that. Get your monocle out there. I mean, hello, it's me. I definitely need to do this because I'm stuck in the 19th century. So I could go on and on on this. You know what? LinkedIn, great. I'd love to know who you led into this program. I'm psyched to see it go. How about 10X that next time? What do you think, Cassie? Love it. Love it. 10 exit. Love 10 it. 10 exit. All right. Let's move on to the next story. Take it away, Cassie. All right. This one I loved because it's all about Latin America. So in Latin America, folks, when it comes to not creation, consumption, they're kicking our butts. People in Latin America are watching 14 hours and 40 minutes of content a day. Their media consumption is humongous. It's the highest in the world. 
Despite leading the world, though, in internet and digital media consumption, the creator economy is looking a little bit latent, I think is the word that was used in the article. Basically, for all of the creators, the 5,000 top ones as well in Brazil that they talked to for this article, half made less than 100 bucks per month. And a quarter of them didn't monetize at all. I thought this was a really interesting article, Jim, because for a place that is leading the world in consumption, it is lagging far, far behind in being able to take care of the people who are creating the content that folks are consuming. So I wanted to get your view on this. You are doing a lot over there in Latin America. What's your take on it? Well, yeah. And to that point, there, it is such an amazing uh, creator economy story there. I think Mexico, and this is a couple of years ago, Mexico is the number three market for YouTube. Brazil is huge and people want to do lots of stuff there. I think it's true that it is a great market, that it's woefully underserved. There's a lot of television watching there for sure, but one of the stats that jumped out to me is 40% of the audience in, maybe it was Brazil, actually purchased something from a creator. You know, 40% yeah. is huge. You know, the huge number of them, actually like 39% of them follow influencers, where it's 14% in the US, it's 13% in the UK, it's 35% in China. You know, the highest part of the world, and Mexico is 29%, which comes in at number four, or Columbia at number five, 20%. So there's a lot of heat. There's a lot that creators are doing to drive product sales. It's just that it's from a monetization perspective, we're behind the eight ball there. And that's one of the things that I hope we do when we bring VidCon to Latin America next year. We'll be doing at least Mexico and Brazil and could be another market, but I'm not going to pre-announce it. There is so much potential there. I mean, some of the stats even further down in the article where they were saying, Obviously, Instagram is the most relevant social platform for these folks in Brazil, but 80% of the people in this survey said that Instagram was relevant for their job, whereas 25% said YouTube was. But 80% of people saying Instagram is relevant for their job, it feels like the most ripe time right now for the creator economy to just explode and monetize there. And it blew my mind that they weren't further along. I wasn't aware that they weren't further along. Yeah, and I've heard about it. And we've pulled an advisory board together in Mexico because we've been working on that show for a couple of years. COVID, without COVID, we would have had it last year. And there's just so much enthusiasm. We've been doing VidCon now, Latin America, out of our Mexico City office. And the sessions they've been putting together have been amazing. The speakers have been amazing. It's getting the most views, or it has historically, of any of our VidCon now sessions that we've been doing for the industry. So there's a real hunger for it. And I look at things like Calle Poche, who's an amazing creator from Colombia, or Los Polynesios, or I could go on and on. They're just extremely creative and talented, and there's so much there. And so I do believe the market will follow. Another thing that has me optimistic about that, by the way, is the author of this story. It's from Andreessen Horowitz, from the future media company that one of the biggest venture capital firms in the world put together to talk about it. So the fact that Andreessen Horowitz is leaning into the creator economy in Latin America in a way that they put a study out here and put this out there says to me that they see the opportunity and they're going to be doing some investing down there or they're pushing their creator economy startups that they have already invested in to do more in Latin America. You'd imagine that the latter of those things would be a very strong push. The businesses that they've already invested in, you'd imagine, are getting out there and, and starting to run already. Yeah, I think it's a great opportunity for companies to come in. There's some great companies that are already there. I'm actually talking to one, I think, next week. I can't wait to do VidCon in Mexico and VidCon in Brazil and hear all about what people are doing. See the fans who are so passionate about these creators. When we started VidCon Now, our digital version of VidCon last summer, one of our first sessions was with 
Kai Poche. We did a, a stream session with them and it basically broke our entire systems. We had so many people coming in all at once. It basically broke what we were doing. Our Discord server was out of control. And so the creators are there, the audience is there, they're buying things. Now we just need the ad market to jump in because, and the other monetization things. And we need some of the developments that are happening around the world, and particularly in the US and other places around Web3 to start to infiltrate their way there as well. I can't wait, Jim. I can't can't wait wait either. See other humans and other places and other rooms. Yeah, exactly. Oh, we're going, we're going. Let's talk about our big story of the day. For those of you who are listening to this not live, we record this live on Fireside. It's this great platform where you can join us. We do it live with a studio audience. You could come join us. And one of the benefits of joining us is you get to actually ask questions and be part of the discussion. So what we do with our big story, our big idea topic of the week is we'll introduce it. We'll talk about it a little bit. We'll invite our studio audience. If anybody wants to come up and talk about it, they can. If they don't, we'll move on. But really excited to see if anybody today on Fireside wants to come up and chat about this. So feel free to chat about it. We're going to jump right into it. So I want to talk today about social tokens and hodl up everyone. Social tokens are going to be huge. First of all, Cassie, you know what hodl stands for, right? No. H-O-D-L. It's a crypto, special crypto thing. It stands for hang on for dear life. Now it's kind of weird because hodl is a crypto thing. It may have been somebody misspelled hold, like, you know, hold on, hold, (laughs) you know, hold is like a, you know, a financial thing, but it's hodl. So Hold on for dear life. Social tokens are going to be big. There's a lot around NFTs and Dogecoin, but I was inspired about this because one of our favorite writers, Rex Woodbury, was talking about how social tokens could be bigger than both of those combined and how they really are starting to emerge. Now, what social tokens do is they basically a creator, anybody can create a token. Like you could have Cassie token, you could have Cassie coin, I could have Jim coin, we could have VidCoin, and you can build economy around yourself or around your content or around your show. And there are a lot of reasons why this makes sense. It it binds you to your fans. It lets your fans and others share in the growth of your channel, of your show, of your content, of what you do. And it really is a way to create a even deeper connection between creators and their communities. A lot of interesting stuff out there. There are a couple of companies that'll let you do it. I did a video interview, which is up on my LinkedIn with Bradley Miles, who's the CEO of social token startup Roll. And by the way, he'll be joining us. Some of their execs will be joining us at VidCon Abu Dhabi and Singapore later this year. Rally is doing really interesting things. I spent some time with the CEO, Remner Morris of Rally last week, and both of them are really enabling creators to create a token, sell it to their, or give it away to their audience. And then as the value of that token increases, the value of it increases for everybody and the value of the community increases. A lot of interesting things happening there. Another thing that happened last week in the social token space, there's this company BitClout that sort of weird allowed social tokens to happen, could go in and buy tokens for any top 1,500 people or 15,000 people on Twitter. Kind of weird, but the guy who started it, it was invested in by A16Z and a bunch of other people. He was anonymous. Then he just announced himself and said that BitClout was actually built on this decentralized social blockchain that he built, which he called DSO, which some people took umbrage to and other people really liked. But I want to talk about this social token thing and what it means and how it's going to emerge. And I want to get your thoughts on social tokens, Cassie. I actually love this. And I know maybe it was all the way back in our first or second podcast episode that we did, Jim, we talked about this, right? We dove into the idea of more around who owns us and our brands. And then as a creator starts to create in a community, 
how that economy can grow. I love the part of this that I love the most was when they started, because, you know, I'm a music fan, is when they started to break down Little Nas X and how Little Nas is showing so, so much strategy behind all of these different ways of galvanizing communities, going back all the way to the point where he had 900 Spotify listeners. Now he's got 50 million And then he's breaking down how he's pulled his community together from the, I guess it's the NAS dollar or the NAS token that he's got. And it is just such a wild journey when you look back on it. And it's still so new and evolving. But to look back even on the last year and a half of this one artist's life and the way that he's curated in a very smart way, his community, and then also built into that community ways to feel more special, to feel more connected, to feel like the top fan. It's just amazing the way that he's pulled all this together. And his tokens, they're crazy. The market capitalization said in, in 2019 of his tokens were 100,000 and now it's sitting at like 10 million, which is, is huge. Then the other piece that I really loved was uh, the artist RIC, who was basically allowing fans, you have to earn his tokens, you couldn't buy them. And I like that even more, Jim, because that's the thing where you start to really galvanize a community around fandom and showing up for each other, showing up for the artist, showing up to support not only the artist, but other community members. It's brilliant. It feels like when we were kids and we would trade garbage pail cards and be part of some kind of a a community that felt close. This feels like a way for in this digital world of the creator economy to feel close and important as a fan. And I just love it. Yeah, I love the Garbage Pail Kids reference. Thanks for taking me back. A couple things that I think are really interesting. One, I love the idea of giving tokens to people who do things. And this is a great way to actually put your audience to work, put your biggest fans to work. I was chatting with Remner Morris from Rally, and he said something really interesting to me on Friday. Social tokens are fungible. They're like a quarter, but it's a quarter with your picture on it. And then there are NFTs, which are not, which are special and also have value. And the two are interrelated in very interesting ways. We said, you know, he's been realizing that social tokens don't, they're not something that you want to talk about that much. Like you don't talk about how much money is in your wallet, how much money is in your bank account, how much money you get paid. That tends to be private. And I don't think we'll talk about like, I'm holding, you know, 27,000 Cassie coins. But what you will do is then use them and the way that we display, you know, our love of things, but also, you know, kind of subtly display our wealth. You know, if I've got a Maserati, you kind of figure I'm probably got a little bit of money. If I have an amazing Lil Nas X, very special NFT that I put on my, you know, wherever I put it digitally, that also says I'm kind of special or, you know, the stuff that Vaynerchuk is doing with his NFTs or anything like that. So that interrelationships between NFTs and social tokens, I think are really interesting. And those are just being explored as well. And I do want to say that Paul put his hand up and I invited him up on stage. So I want to ask Paul, what do you want to talk about in this world? Enlighten us as to what you think. Oh, I wish I could. I'm kind of in all this. I've been on BitClout. I don't know if that's even the right term, been on BitClout or (laughs) part of BitClout or, you know, joined a cult. I don't know. (laughs) And then I didn't do anything. I look back and I think maybe I've been on there. Last post I'd had was like 150 some days and, you know, that value went up. And then I didn't do anything. And so it just was creeping down. And then I was like, you know what, let me play around with this again, like a couple of weeks ago. And I, so I just started posting on my three BitClout accounts with one being Paul Vato, one being comedian and one being elevate. These were like the three words, you know, well, of course, my own brand and then something that I'm interested in and then a random word. And it was, you have to have a phone connected with it. So I think I used my brother's phone for one. 
And then also, I think if you bought $80 worth of BitCloud, then you could also, I was like, all right, that's enough. I'm just going to invest 80 bucks and see what happens. So I'm in that and I've been posting and the value has been going up. What it does for me, I have no idea. But I love the concept of it. <laughs> I mean, that you're monetizing your social clout. So yeah, I don't know if that answers the questions, but I was also very interested in the content creation for Latin America. So yeah, whatever you guys want to talk about, I'm here. Well, let's talk about BitCloud for a minute because I went in on BitCloud and I took my name and I you know, spent like around $80 for tokens. I can't remember what. And I bought my own token and a couple other people bought my token and the, you know, the value went up a little bit. But I love that you had three different accounts. So you sort of hacking BitClout, which I think is really interesting. I'm sure a lot of people were doing it. I was talking to Brendan Gaughan about it, and he had been building himself up. But then you know what I did? As soon as I heard that the founder of BitCloud had, had come out and then said, this is just one app on my decentralized social blockchain, I went and sold my tokens of my own that I bought because I wanted actually the coin for the social blockchain. And I decided that the social blockchain coin that he was building was more valuable than my token. I don't know what that says about how I value myself, but that's what I did. <laughs> you pull the rug out of your own. Uh, my own economy. economy. Yes. Is that what they call it? I think you I did my own economy. Out. I took the money and I ran. I was like, thanks you other people for supporting me. I'm taking all the money out and I'm buying something else. Actually, I just went back to the main coin. But again, the Deso coin or, and how do you do that? So maybe we'll have to chat off this or. Every BitClout is a Deso coin now. That's the thing. So if you bought BitClout and didn't buy a coin in somebody and it was just sitting in your account, it automatically became a Deso coin or whatever it is. This is, at least I think that's the case because I went and sold, like I said, I sold my gym coin or whatever it was. And I don't know. I think BitCloud is one of those things. It's like, it's interesting. It's not going anywhere. Probably why the whole Deso thing went out. And there's some people who are not that happy about him doing this. And, you know, they were just all over him and saying, oh, this is kind of stupid. Let me tell you this story I ran into from, but uh, Protos, the site protos.com wrote about, he didn't raise this new blockchain. It's the same old S star, star, star. So Cassie, you want to say anything more about crypto? And then we can chat with Paul a little bit about LATAM too. No, I don't need, have anything else to say about crypto. I didn't buy my own coins or sell them on the market. So... <laughs> I feel so guilty now that I pulled the rug out from two people who bought my coin, but I think it was probably the two people whose coin I bought. So, Paul, let's talk about LATAM. What are you thinking about on the LATAM space? Well, I'm Latino, but I was you know, born here. I like to say I'm a Chicano, a Chicano from Chicago. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I may have coined that. There's my coin. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Dollar sign Chicago. It's a little long, but maybe it'll work. But I see all these programs uh, like right now. Someone has the sound up, which is, you know, they're looking for Latino or Latinx, as some people call us, uh, content creators. Now, but I'm seeing that this might be, you know, I'm almost being too short-sighted just looking at the American market because the studies that they've done here have shown that Latinos, at least U.S. Latinos, and which is usually predominantly, you know, we're going to be English first that happen to have be of Latin descent. Something like 56% have, you know, have listened to a podcast, have been, in, you know, some kind of involvement with a podcast. While the mainstream market is, I think, not want to say much lower, but like 30 some percent. But yet, once again, the Latinos account for you know, a minuscule amount of actual content creators. You know, unlike, you know, in Hollywood, where it's easy for us to go, well, you know, they're not giving us the chances. I feel like in the podcasting world, it's up to you to make this content. It's up to us to create content. So it's not like anyone is stopping us. So I think that the market is wide open. And but now looking that this also includes Latin America and I better start brushing up on my Portuguese because it looks like Brazil is the number one. 
So I don't know if, if that's making any sense or which what direction I'm going in it, but I just have to, you know, but I was wondering, is Latin America consuming podcasts in their respective languages, i.e. Portuguese or Spanish, or are they also listening to English podcasts? I don't know if you know anything on that tip. Cassie, anything come to mind on podcasts? I don't have any podcast figures in front of me, although I do know that we are planning a couple of sessions both in Brazil and in Mexico City about podcasting to help push that along as well. Well, I don't know, have any numbers off the top of my head on the podcasting, but I imagine they would be equally as high just because of the stats and the way that they're rolling across the channels. Um, it would also just depend on the, the audience vertical there too, I imagine, Paul. I would imagine the podcasts go a little bit older. They skew older because the numbers are huge on the TikTok. <laughs> so you could kind of almost extrapolate that out or down, depending on what you wanted to do. But Really, I don't have any numbers, so I'm just making stuff up. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. They really are. I mean, and, and the social network evolution stuff that they had in that chart was really, you know, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, not really anything on the podcasting space, but just like everywhere else. I think, you know, it's every market is different and it's going to develop in different ways. But I think some of the core platforms and the core things that people are enjoying will certainly see a lot more around it. So, yeah. How are you uh, addressing the LATAM market? if you are at all. Well, that's the thing. I don't think I really am, but I also see that. I guess you guys are talking more about, you know, the video market, which I love doing that. I had some success early on, like in the YouTube days. But then when I opened my business, which is bricks and mortar, I didn't almost see the need for it because I relied on tourists that are walking by. But then, of course, being shut down for four months, you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> let me pivot here and, and go back to social media and, you know, try and bring more things online. But I feel like I haven't directed it towards the Latin American community because it's a little bit more difficult for me to speak Spanish. It's already tough enough for me to speak English. It makes sense. But then <laughs> trying to do it in another language, you know, but it's there. So I don't know if I should be doing a bilingual, you know, videos and content and podcasts and things like that, or whether just subtitling things might be good enough. Because I know that there are some travel you know, shows that either it's an American in Korea and, you know, and they're speaking Korean or, you know, a Russian that has moved to Mexico or Latin America and they're doing their travel shows in all Spanish. So they're getting their people from back home, but also all of Latin America watching their stuff. I'd say there's always power in that cross-pollinization, Paul, definitely, depending on how you want to, what you feel more comfortable with and how you want to shoot your content or record your content or who the focus point is, what the focal point is. Definitely, if the audience is there. I would say cater to them. Jim, we've talked about this a few times, right? About making sure that things that are appeal to global audiences are able to reach those audiences in contextual ways. And a lot of the time that language is the biggest uh, barrier to that. So if you can do more than one language, do it. Absolutely. I had two comments on that. One is check out the company Unilingo, U-N-I-L-I-N-G-O. Farbad Mansouri is the CEO and he's spoken at VidCon. He's actually going to speak in Abu Dhabi on this topic. What his company does is it translates video and maybe podcasts as well. I haven't checked in with him for a year or so into other languages in a really intelligent way. And what he's found is that just by doing translations and putting it out there, you know, he's gotten 50% or more views around that. Like he's, for example, taking Mr. Beast stuff and putting it out there. He's not calling it. And we talked about this before. I forget the, he's just calling it Mr. Beast in Espanol versus like El Beat, whatever the Spanish version of Beast Senor is. Senor Be Bestio? Bestio, there you go. Senor Bestio. You have a good memory, Cassie. Bestia. Well done. Best, best, Senor Bestia. Bestia. But he's really doing that. And then the last comment I have is Portuguese for sure. But if you're still trying to figure out how to be really good at Spanish, I'm really bad at Spanish and my Portuguese is horrible. So 
good luck with that. But there's definitely well, a market there. Well, this is how bad my Spanish. Somebody did call me a bestia once. They're like, "Tú eres un bestia," you know. And I literally, I go, I couldn't translate it. And I was like, "Are they saying that I'm the best?" <laughs> and I go, "Guess, guess, bestia." And they had to like, "Es como un animal, como un." And I was like, "Oh, they're not saying I'm the best. They're saying I'm an beast. animal. You're oh, a beast, mm-hmm. beast, beast, the beast, beast mode." <laughs> All right, we're gonna move on from this big story, Paul. You can stick around if you want. What we do in the next section here is we go through four stories really quickly. One of us will introduce it. The other will comment on it. If you want to stick around, you can comment on it as well. And then we'll just move to the next one. Otherwise, Cassie will do it. So if that makes sense, stick around and we will toss over to you as well as we jump into our quick news hits. Take it away, Cassie. This one Good news from the pandemic about the soul of el football soccer. There we go. There's some more Espanol. Soccer seems about as far away from fans as it ever been. And Copa 90, uh, which focuses on the culture around the sport of soccer. Copa 90 CEO said football has lost its soul. There was a beautiful article that I read about this in DigiDay. What I loved about it and what I took away from it was In the midst of a pandemic where the CEO of this kind of creative culture community business stopped and went with the sport has lost its soul, he said any changes to the business of Copa 90 have been done at 300 miles an hour and 30,000 feet for the entirety of the business. But the pandemic stopped everything. It grounded the business and the pandemic gave the business time to stop, think, reassess and even rebuild the foundation upon which Copa 90 was born. So for me, I'm seeing this as good news about a stop from the pandemic in an area that is seemingly driven by ego and money and needed to go back to fandom. It feels like the pandemic might have been the reset soccer needed to go back to the fans. Well, I also think he was talking about Super League in there and this European soccer thing they proposed that was going to create an NFL style league. And all of the community fans of all these community clubs rebelled. And it was really the power of the fans saying, don't destroy my community. Don't destroy my sport. Run away, run away, go away. And I really loved that the fans took their sport back. I don't know, Paul, what do you think? Well, first of all, I think we should go back to calling it soccer. <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you, I thought you said you were a Latino. Ben's <laughs> fighting words. Uh, yeah. um, I live in a country that is divided on this, Paul. Um, where are you, Cassie? I'm in New Zealand. Oh, yeah, 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 of course, of course. Well, I love that when it, you know, if it goes back into the power of the people, but it sounds like they recognize what was happening then is that, and that's unfortunately, I'm not into the world of, of football, if you will, even though a friend of mine, I'm friends with Jason Sudeikis and, and Brendan Hunt, who created Ted Lasso. So I should get more into it, but yeah. So I don't know if I'm the right person to ask that, but it's great that they recognize that, you know, they weren't maybe going in the direction that benefited uh, the fans, the people that make it all possible. Yeah. It's gotta be a community first thing. That means we're moving on to our next story. Our next story is about Roblox. Roblox is the make your own game system that is making the metaverse and doing a lot of interesting things. Interestingly enough, if you have kids at home 13 or under, you probably already know this, but more than half of Roblox's audience is under the age of 13. And they are now rolling out an age verification system 
so that they can figure out who's over 13 and who's under 13. And first of all, I love this. In order to find out if you're 13 and over, you need a government ID, a license or a passport. And they take a picture of you, I guess, to compare it to your license or your passport. But how many 13 or 14-year-olds have a license? Probably none. How many of them have a passport? Some, but not that many. So I'm not sure if this is really going to work. The only thing they're really using it for is voice chat. But I think trying to segregate into 13 plus and under 13 users so that you can deliver some more, I don't know, adult-oriented stuff to 13 plus, just like I've said many times in the past, what could possibly go wrong, Cassie? I actually don't know anybody on Roblox who's over 13. <laughs> well, you know me, so I am. working up the way wrong tree here. Okay, Jim, but you're always our special boy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not that often, but um, I am. Yeah. What could go wrong, Jim? This just brings up, you know, that little funny taste in my mouth from when we were talking about Instagram for kids and all of these different things. I know, especially on platforms, other platforms where they ask for government IDs, passport licenses as a parent, and even just as a human of earth, it makes me really nervous sending in pictures of myself or my child with their IDs. But you know, good on them for trying. Well, let me put it, I'm going to put a possibility out there. So let's say that because they're doing a lot of great stuff in music and the guy who's running music is really good and smart. They've had some concerts out there. They want to do a lot more. If they have a band that, you know, is a little bit more racy on their lyrics and really shouldn't be appealing to 13 and under, I can see them putting out there and want to age verify before you can go see the show. But tell me, you're a 12 year old and all your friends are going to go and you're going to be listening to them and it's your community. You're going to figure out a way to get in. Paul, what do you think about Roblox trying to age gate here? <laughs> I'm so out of this world. I was like, I thought we were going to talk about Rolexes. I thought I read Rolex. And I was like, all right, let's talk about that. And then it's like, what's rope? So I've already downloaded it, but I don't even know if I belong on there. But I think at that age, not many people have an ID. I think my brother and I did because somehow my mom wanted us to have a checking account. For those of you that remember those back in the 1900s. <laughs> and I think that came along with getting a government ID, but I didn't realize that kids are able to get IDs nowadays. I don't know how that works, but I guess it should limit who's doing, you know, the content should be for over 13. Yeah, I think it's 13 plus is what they're mm. looking for. Yeah, it's interesting because Instagram in coming up with Instagram for kids was aging down. Whereas Roblox is aging up. So I just wonder voice chat first, you know, they're trying to disrupt discord here because everybody uses Discord and then hops on Roblox. But Discord, by aging up, what else are they planning? I don't think we're gonna know. So I think we're gonna go on to the next story. The Influencer Marketing Factory completed a survey where it studied the creator economy market from both the user and the creator perspective. Now, this is nothing that's earth-breaking or earth-shaking, this survey. But after they analyzed the results of it, they basically came up with six interesting little factoids in that content creators' favorite platforms move from TikTok to Instagram to YouTube. Those are the top three. Not surprising, TikTok is a creator's best buddy. There were all different kinds of things they came up with. The thing that got me, Jim, was that 58% of users from the survey, 58%, so almost six and 10, said that in the next 12 months, they'd pay a monthly subscription fee between $1 to $15 a month to access their favorite creator's exclusive content. That feels like a very high number. I was wondering if that felt like a high number to you. It does feel like a high number to me. I think that is a lot. We'll talk about the number in a minute, but I will say I'm glad to see that people want to spend that. And Paul, what's your point of view? Are you planning on charging subscriptions to your content? Do you think that there's an audience for that? How do you feel 
And do you think more than half of the people out there would pay a subscription to what you do? I don't think that they would. Because that does seem high, but I like the way it's shifting towards that because people have now gotten used to paying for content that's being streamed. You know, gone are the days of, you know, the Pirate Bay or all these places where, where you're getting content for free and not paying for it. People, it's been, the mentality has been shifted that, yeah, you know, you don't even have to leave your house to get content streamed to you. And I think people are definitely willing to pay for that value because I have to start thinking that way too, that maybe people will pay for my content instead of me just trying to use my content to guide them either into, I don't know, getting coaching for acting or, you know, for starting your own business or for, yeah, mostly improv or to send people to my, to buy cigars, you know, cause that's a very small percentage. So maybe it is in the content. Maybe people will pay for that, but 60 does seem, you know, 58% seems pretty high. But again, people are getting used to it. So I hope so. Well, and for you uh, doing stuff, I'm assuming around cigars, the nice thing about the cigar consumption audience is it tends to be a higher income audience. And if you created sort of special, unique content for your cigar audience fans, converting some percentage of that to that, you know, maybe it's, I don't know what cigar smokers do, but could you create a special Discord server where it's, you know, cigar smoking and discussions? I don't know, but I think there's something there. The one thing that I will say about this study, and you can get it at the Influencer Marketing Factory, I looked at the report, and I'm going to just bring a little critical thinking to this. The survey, let me just tell you how they did this. The survey of the users, this is, it's both a user survey and it's a creator survey. It's actually a really good introduction to the creator economy. And if somebody asks you, what is the creator economy? This is actually a good thing to send them. But don't trust the numbers. 600 users in the U.S. who submitted an online survey. So pretty self-selecting, not a random sample, only 600 users, where traditionally you need more than that if you want to predict a big audience like the U.S. And 500 creators submitted in the U.S. So again, only 500 creators, not a random sample. They submitted an online survey. This is a company that I think works with creators. So I wonder if they just got all their creators to fill it out. Mm -hmm. So I am skeptical about the numbers. Directionally, I think it's interesting. Don't draw a lot of conclusions from the specific numbers, particularly when they rate TikTok versus Instagram versus YouTube. But directionally, I think it's interesting. And if they say 58% would pay between 1 and 15, I think it's legit to say that there is a significant number. Is it 20%? Is it 15%? Is it more or less? But it's something that would pay something to access a creator's exclusive content. So in that sense, I think it's good. And I will take comments from you two, and then we're going to move on to our last story. I was with you kind of on the, the critical thinking side there, Jim, and I was giggling to myself as you were saying that because it's always the way that I look at industry reports from the marketing and advertising industry as well. When we ask our own what they think, you can always kind of tell where the skew is going to be <laughs> on the answers about, you know, what's good and what's bad and what people are willing to do. You can always kind of unpack a little bit of the biases and then you're still left wondering what the actual numbers are. Yeah. And I was a math major and I took stats. I always look for a confidence interval. Like, what is the confidence interval of this? Is it 1% to 2%? Is it 3 to 5%? Is it 10 to 15%? I've stopped doing that because a lot of times I'll, people roll out numbers in sessions or they're trying to sell me something. And I ask that and they look at me with that deer in the headlights look of like, what? So I find numbers just, unless it's done by a reputable, really reputable, like just research agency, it's probably a good idea just to be like, hey, it's directional, but I'm not going to buy the individual numbers. All right, last story of the day. This one is about TikTok, specifically about TikTok's parent company, Doyen, in China. 
said last week that they're going to limit users under the age of 14 to just 40 minutes a day using their TikTok style app from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. I think that's great. Now, why did they do that? Because in China, they basically developed these new rules that say Chinese citizens under the age of 18 can play online games only on Fridays, weekends, and holidays between 8 and 9 p.m. And they want Doyen to use real name identification, which is great. China is really limiting how much time those under 18 and those particularly under 14 can spend with a lot of these new platforms. I think that's a good idea. Cassie, what do you think? I think it's a fantastic idea. I spent all yesterday, Jim, listening to the podcast from the Facebook files that we talked to last week. And wow, the kick in the guts was again, the the Instagram one and how it coincided with mental health and then physical health and physiological health with young women specifically on the app. And as the mother of a 15-year-old daughter, I just think, what hell hath we let loose with all of this for our young kids? Not sure if I want the government uh, mandating all of that, but you know what? If it's going to help save a generation of young folks and maybe get them outside and talking to each other in real life again, maybe it's a good thing. Yeah, Paul, what do you think about limiting kids to only a certain amount of time on social networks during the day or all the time? Yeah, it's a good thing. And you're right. Like, should the government be doing it? But if the parents aren't doing it, you know, then are unable to do it, not even up to them. It's like, well, it's not us, it's the government. And I don't think you want to mess around in China. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the line. I don't think you want to mess around there. <laughs> don't mess with Texas and don't mess around in China. I will say the last thing in the story that I loved when they were talking about what ByteDance is going to make available, to, I guess they have this youth mode, right? The content available in youth mode is educational material like interesting popular science experiments, exhibitions in museum and galleries, and beautiful scenery across the country, explanations of historical knowledge, and so on. All I got to say is, have you watched any of those science experiments on TikTok? Uh, I'm not sure some of those are as educational (laughs) as you might think. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's Inside the Creator Economy. Spread the word. Spread the word and tell all your friends. We're here every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific uh, and uh, have a lot of fun here. Thank you, Paul, for joining. Really appreciate it. Uh, I'm Jim Lauterbach and Cassie. I'm Cassie Roma. And we will see you next week, where I'm sure we'll have a whole bountiful update to what's going on in the creator economy, uh, as well as, I'm sure, more rants on critical thinking. So that's it. See you next time. (laughs) I'm heading over to BitCloud to buy you some Jim Lauterback coin. I I destroyed that market. (laughs) You could probably get it for pennies on the coin. I'm not even sure that's a term. (laughs) Anyway, we'll see y'all next time. Thanks a lot.